I miss Dye. Hi. I miss Fields. Hi, sweetheart. How you doing? Good. Had to make sure my voice didn't crack. Uh, my name is Aaron Hibbett. I am a 17-year-old junior at Iroquois High School. Um, I'm a social butterfly. I know almost everybody. Um, you know me, I'm a very happy person. It's, it's contagious. Like, the classroom will be quiet. I walk in, everybody's trying to have a conversation. And I don't know. People look at me, they ask me, I get this question like, like but how are you so happy? And it's 7.40 in the morning. I'm like, why not? That Zyron, the one I met in April 2021, was a far cry from the boy who'd first walked into Iroquois nearly three years earlier. The one who wanted nothing to do with the school. His first month, Zyron hardened himself. He became a tough guy, someone he thought other kids wouldn't mess with. Meanwhile, his middle school friends were starting their freshman years elsewhere at the quote-unquote good schools. They knew he didn't get into DuPont Manual, the public magnet school ranked number one in the state, which takes high-performing kids from all over the city. But Zyron couldn't stomach telling them the truth about where he wound up. He lied. Sometimes, he said he got into another Jefferson County magnet school, he told others he was going to a pricey private school. Man, I really got to go here, and I got to claim I go here. And I said I went to Butler for the longest. Then I said I went to Trinity. But it wasn't, it wasn't like, when, then after a while, I feel like after that first month, it was me, I guess, testing the waters. It wasn't as bad as people said it was. Like, nowhere close. I'm thinking, oh, there's going to be fights in every class. Whole, and I'm just like, man, I'm just preparing myself for the worst at this point. And then I came and said, I'm like, oh, so no one's fighting? <laughs> Zyron was born in 2005. Even then, Iroquois struggled with its reputation. According to one Courier-Journal article from the time, more Iroquois students were being arrested on campus than at any other school in Jefferson County. As for academics... Iroquois was already at the bottom of state rankings, a fact the newspaper highlighted for readers every year. Iroquois consistently landed in the paper's bottom 10 list. Manuel, meanwhile, consistently led the top 10 list. What the paper failed to highlight in those ranking stories was the stark difference in the school's populations, a divergence that began decades earlier in the name of integration. If you hit more green lights than red, it takes only about 10 minutes to get from Manuel to Iroquois. The two schools are a straight shot from each other, down 2nd and then 3rd Street, past the University of Louisville and then Churchill Downs, where 3rd Street morphs into leafy Southern Parkway and its tidy mid-century homes. It's because of this close proximity that the two schools' histories are intertwined. And to understand the full story, you need to go back to the beginning. Officials broke ground on the Louisville Manual Training High School in 1892. The new school had the financial backing of Alfred Victor DuPont, a member of the family behind the company we know today as DuPont Chemicals. As a manual training school, students were expected to study more than the classics. 
manual when it was first opened was made fun. The students were called blacksmiths and <laughs> and I don't know what all, but the idea behind the manual training movement was to pretty much what the word signifies, learn how to use your hands and your brain at the same time. That's Mike McDaniel. He graduated from manual in 1964 and now directs the school's alumni association. He knows more about Manuel's history than anyone else in Louisville. He's even written a book about it. Manuel didn't move into its current location, a stately brick building in the old Louisville neighborhood, until 1950. By the time McDaniel enrolled in 1960, Manuel had fully shed its blacksmith reputation. Manuel offered a pre-engineering program and had a formidable football team. As for Iroquois High... It didn't even exist yet. Its building did, though, and was known at the time as Gottschalk Junior High. The school sat beneath Iroquois Park, a 725-acre urban getaway planned by Frederick Law Olmsted, the landscape architect behind New York's Central Park. McDaniel, who is white, grew up in an area just north of Iroquois Park known as the South End. My parents lived on Bluegrass, almost at the intersection of Taylor and Bluegrass, right across the street from Hazelwood Baptist Church. And my grandparents lived one block north on Lehigh. Back then, Manuel was the closest high school to McDaniel's house. He and many of his classmates from the South End came from blue-collar families. There were quite a few professionals out there, but mostly they were... Uh, there were an awful lot of World War II veterans who, you know, used their GI Bill to buy those little houses out there, and they were they got blue-collar jobs, but uh, they wanted their kids to get the best education they could get. Because of rampant redlining in Jefferson County and the residential segregation it caused, the south end of McDaniel's childhood was overwhelmingly white. So was Manuel. Since its founding the school had only served white students. It remained that way until 1956, when Louisville schools began to integrate. When McDaniel entered high school four years later, things had changed, but not by much. I talked to McDaniel about this over the phone. So, at the, you know, in your graduating class, you know, what percentage would you say was white students versus black students? You know, I could get my yearbook out and, and figure that out for you. I've never even oh, yeah. thought about it. Uh, I, I'm going to say at, at the time, and this is a kind of an educated guess, Manuel probably in between 12 and 15%. You look at our yearbook, well, if you want, if you hang on just a second. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, bear with me here. I'll take your time. I sat and listened while McDaniel went through his yearbook, trying to count the number of black students in his graduating class. I counted 35 out of five. Well, I'm not sure that everybody got the picture in the yearbook. Uh, some people didn't. Okay. But... 35 out of 595. Even if McDaniel's count had been slightly off, it would still be far lower than even he expected. By his count, 
just 6% of students in his graduating class were black. Still, many white families in Louisville, and really across the country, had convinced themselves that even a small bit of integration spelled trouble. For years, South End parents pressed the Louisville School Board to open a new high school closer to their homes. McDaniel was just a teenager then. From what he can remember, it wasn't about race. It was about transportation. Because back then, there were no school buses. Yeah, the complaint was, and and I had to ride the city bus to school until I got a driver's license in a car. And whereas it, you know, wasn't all that far, but it was, man, it certainly was not within walking distance of most people who lived in the old, what I described as the old South End. The old South End to me is the Iroquois Park, Southern Parkway area. So there was a ground swell of activity for pressure put on the board to build a high school. For a lot of adults, this complaint about long bus rides and needing the return of neighborhood schools has been used in Louisville and other districts across the country, and often, historians have found, has had a racist subtext. No matter the motivations of the South End parents, One thing is clear in Louisville's historical record. Parents didn't want their kids at Manual. In the fall of 1965, they got their way. They got Iroquois High School. Iroquois quickly developed a strong reputation for academics. By the time its first class graduated in 1968, it was the most coveted high school in the city district. Parents wanted their kids there, and teachers wanted to teach there including McDaniel, who started at Iroquois in 1971 after going off to college and earning a teaching degree. That year, Iroquois was so popular that it enrolled more students than it technically had room for. Despite the school's outward success, though, officials saw a problem looming. Years after Iroquois first opened, it remained virtually all white. Manuel, on the other hand, had become increasingly black. If nothing changed, the district was facing a lawsuit. In an attempt to fix the imbalance, officials extended Manuel's boundary lines farther into the South End. That way, more white students would be zoned to attend Manuel instead of Iroquois. Both Iroquois parents and students protested that change, according to Courier-Journal reporting from the time. One young white man put it bluntly, quote, whites don't want to go to school with a large number of black students. In the end, the Louisville School District couldn't escape litigation. In 1975, court-ordered busing began. McDaniel, still a rookie teacher, remembers the moment clearly. Uh, after the school year started, I was involved in a... Uh, Real scary. There was, there was, a, you had to call it a race riot. Um, it all happened, it all started with a fight behind the school between a black kid and a white kid, and it filtered into the, uh, into the school building. And you had a group of white kids chasing a group of black kids, and every now and then they'd turn around, and the black kids would chase the white kids, and it was real scary. We had a lockdown. And I don't remember exactly what part of the year. I'm going to say it was probably September or early October at the latest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm out in the hall trying to trying to 
get everybody to stop. They stormed the administrative offices, and black kids were in there trying to call home, get mom and dad come pick them up. They were scared to death. I, I remember that well. Uh, we went from 1% minority in 74, 75 at Iroquois to 32% minority in one fell swoop the next year. And uh, and uh, I could only describe that as culture shock. Iroquois group. Hi, Rick said I could stop by. My name's Mandy. I'm with the Courier Journal. Oh, Hi. Oh, we're, we're just now cooking, honey. Oh, cool. I'm Rick. Oh, hi, Rick. Hi, Mandy. Mandy. Nice to meet you all. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for letting me crash. What I was crashing that Saturday back in July was an Iroquois alumni gathering. I'd seen the event on Facebook, and Rick Taylor class of 1978, kindly invited me to join. I showed up around noon, only intending to stay for about an hour. I didn't leave until 6 that night, because I was having fun. (laughs) Mandy, tell him who you been, girl. Hi, I'm Mandy with the newspaper, the Courier-Journal. It's too hard to hear over the laughter. But as soon as I sat down, there it was, the question that always gets asked in Louisville. Rick had asked me where I went to school. Everyone there had graduated from Iroquois in the late 70s and early 80s. The gathering happened in late July, and it was raining off and on, so we chatted under a pop-up tent. Rick was manning the grill, so he came in and out of the conversation. We were at Algonquin Park, which on the surface didn't make sense. Iroquois High was anywhere from five to eight miles away, depending on which route you took. If this was an Iroquois alumni event, why not meet at Iroquois Park? That's when I learned about Old World versus New World. So y'all were in school at the same time? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. Cool. Oh, yes. (laughs) We were in the same neighborhood with each other since uh, elementary. Yeah. Around Algonquin? Yeah. 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 We, we, we live on the other side of Algonquin. Yeah. When you lived on the south side of Algonquin, we, we're considered New World. He's on the north side of Algonquin, it's considered Old World. So we're Old World, New World. Okay. And we merged at busing. When busing, and we all got bus to Iroquois, mm-hmm. we didn't like each other because we came from different schools. Like on the New World side, we went to Butler originally. And uh, where did the old world Manual. go? They went to Manual? They were going to Manual, Manual or Mail, Shawnee, Central. Central. Yeah. And then we got bus, and we mm-hmm. all ended up at Iroquois. That's Tanya Sandifer, class of 78, and Terrence Bryant, class of 1980. They and everyone else at the table were black. Most experienced the first year of busing. Like McDaniel, their memories were sharp. I can tell you when we first when we first got bused out there, first couple of days we couldn't even get off the bus. Right. Because they, they were just picketing you know, and they, they, they were screaming with a sign. Go home. They bombed you know, our bus with snowballs. You no, know, we and couldn't stuff. get off yeah, the bus. Was, I think the at the third later. or fourth day, I think third, I can't really remember what day, but we had to have the National Guards kind of escort us in. You know. 
And I used to carry this big old bag, and I used to carry a Louisville Slugger bat in it. Wow. I did every day because I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, but, you, you, know. but you, you had to. I mean, it was just the fact that you just had to because uh, it wasn't it wasn't easy. You know, after we finally got into the school and getting our classes and being in class, I mean, it was just like almost a fight every day. That's when Algonquin's old world kids and new world kids banded together. They may not have liked each other before, but they needed each other now. They forged friendships that would last a lifetime. The tumult of busing eventually wore off. Things at Iroquois started to feel normal. There were pep rallies and Friday night football games. They had a full orchestra and a school paper. Iroquois even raised enough money to build a new gym. And most importantly, integration was working. Once we met the whites, everything was just, you know, they would come to our neighborhood after school. We would go to the neighborhood after school, sit down, eat dinner with them, you know, and it was just like, you're, you're a friend, you know. You know, even to this day, I just came from uh, the the West Virginia, Kentucky state line visiting a friend from Iroquois, who is now a professor. Hmm. And uh, and uh, he invited me out, and we we went out there and barbecued and had a good time. If only things could have stayed that way. If they had, I wouldn't be doing this podcast now. But complaints about busing from white families never stopped, and Jefferson County Public Schools was losing too many students to the local parochial system and other nearby districts. So in 1984, the Jefferson County School Board made a history-altering decision. The board voted to effectively end busing for suburban students, who of course were majority white. Busing for black students in Louisville's West End continued. It still does to this day. But for white suburban families, the district pivoted to a new type of voluntary integration known as magnet schools. By 1984, there were already three magnet options for high school students. The K-12 Brown School that offered self-directed learning, the Youth Performing Arts School, also known as Y-Pass, and male traditional high school, which was modeled after a parochial school education. With the new vote, the school board authorized Manual to become another magnet school. It would be focused on math and science. Students who had been zoned to go to Manual were reassigned to regular schools. McDaniel was still at Iroquois when this all went down. Steadily, he saw the school's reputation impacted as middle-class or high-performing kids decamped for the magnets. When the school board turned another high school, Butler, into a magnet in 1988, Iroquois' fate was sealed. I think the final nail in in Iroquois' coffin, so to speak, was when they made Butler a traditional school. Uh, Before that, we had Mayo. Mayo was a traditional school. Then Manuel was made the magnet school. Uh, that started with bypass, of course. Uh, and then Butler being, being made a traditional school, you had, you had three schools, all of which butted up against, uh, the Iroquois district. And, uh, they just siphoned the more academic kids away from Iroquois and into those 
those places. So, you know, the academic credentials of Butler, Manuel, Mail, and Creed, and Air Force dropped off. That's pretty much what, you know, pretty much what happened. Today, there are nearly 2,500 high school-aged public school students living in Iroquois' enrollment zone. Just 1,000 of them actually attend Iroquois. Both sets of kids mainly come from low-income households, but there's a clear difference in their academic skills. The kids that choose to leave Iroquois are more than twice as likely to be proficient in reading and two and a half times as likely to be proficient in math than those who stay. Back in the 80s, many teachers either couldn't or wouldn't adapt to the needier population at Iroquois. Here's McDaniel again. I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'll watch what I'm saying. Because <laughs> I still see a lot of those people and talk to them. Uh, they pretty much dug in, uh, and they were determined that, that what they saw as a, as a lowering of standards, they were not going to allow that to happen. <clears throat> and that kind of created maybe an adversarial relationship between students and teachers. McDaniel taught at Iroquois for 19 years before leaving the school in 1990. By the time he left, the South End was emerging as Louisville's hub for refugee resettlement. That posed a new challenge for Iroquois educators, teaching a large number of students who couldn't yet speak English. Something else had also developed by the time McDaniel left. Iroquois' new nickname. Terrence Bryant remembers. Like I say, in, uh, what do you say, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, Iroquois was a, a very well, well-known school. And, and about 86, you start hearing about the dirty eye and the drugs and the fighting. Uh, you know, whatever's going on, the disrespect, you know. But, uh, and it stuck. It just stuck. You know, even to the day, it's called a dirty eye. There's no one reason why that nickname just won't go away. But there is one thing that folks tend to point to when criticizing Iroquois. It's dismal test scores. In 2018-19, the last regular school year before the COVID-19 pandemic, just 5% of Iroquois students were considered proficient in reading or math. Proficient, according to the Kentucky Department of Education, means a student has a broad understanding of grade-level work. Data points like this are important. A school's number one job, after all, is educating kids. If that's not happening, the public needs to know. But too often, in Louisville and across the country, we talk about these numbers in a vacuum. We pretend the challenges facing schools like Iroquois, poverty, structural racism, rising gun violence, that those problems don't exist. We also fail to acknowledge all the good things happening inside these schools, the bad ones. Zyron showed up at Iroquois a shell of his former self. He could have turned into a kid so disillusioned by school that he stopped showing up. But that's not what happened. Iroquois staff chipped away at his tough guy attitude. 
with compassion, humor, and high expectations, they brought the real Zyron, the one who loved being at school, back to life. Soon, he was a rising star in Iroquois' culinary program. He bonded easily with his teacher, Chef Nakia Rhodes, who, like Zyron, didn't always have the easiest home life growing up. Outside of school, Rhodes, at just 24, is Southern Living Magazine's 2021 Cook of the Year. Inside, to Zyron, she's mom. When Iroquois opened a state-of-the-art industrial kitchen Zyron's sophomore year, there was no more hiding where he went to school. Sophomore year was the year we got the kitchen. And I want to tell you, I probably had like nine interviews in that classroom. Like, and I'm getting calls from my grandmother. I just seen you on the news. I'm so proud of you. It's just stuff like that. You know? Iroquois has one of, if not the, longest school hallways in the state. It's a quarter mile. Forty years ago, Rick Taylor and Terrence Bryant ran sprints up and down that hallway during football practice. Today, the hallway has basically become Zyron's red carpet. With the attention he's received through the culinary program, let's just say he's not afraid to brag. Here he is on one of the days that both the photographer and I were following him around. What? Once you reach a certain point of celebrity status, this stuff comes to happen. It happened, yeah, it just happened. I'm telling you. There's no. There's no. The thing is, his cooking really is that good. I sat on a kitchen stool one morning in late April and watched the magic happen. I didn't know I'd be making a podcast at that point, so I don't have sound. But what you would have heard was a captivating scene. The greatest hits of the 2000s playing over Chef Rhodes' classroom speakers. The crisp cuts of Zyron shredding potatoes, then carrots. The sizzle of bacon. Zyron cracking an egg in a bowl, and complaining about getting his hands dirty. You would have heard Zyron singing along with Mary J. Blige, then talking out loud to himself about his hot sauce and how it didn't taste right, how it needed more ground red pepper and a scoop of sugar, how he was the king of sweet and spicy. The kitchen was awash in smells, fried bacon, caramelized shallots, the tang of apple cider vinegar. By the end, Zyron had created a masterpiece. Juicy pulled pork piled atop a buttery, crisp bun, with ascending layers of bacon and shallots and coleslaw. And the best part? There was a crispy hash brown thrown in there, too. Yes, I did take a bite, or two or maybe three. I couldn't help myself. With two servings left, Zyron knew exactly who he wanted to give them to. First up... His principal, Rob Folk. Folk is not in. Yes, he is. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. Hello. Look at it. What is it? It's a Zai sandwich with some butter sauce. I made some tweaks to it. And I tell you, it's, you know, 
That's a good oven. Man, a little bit of everything. I got my own slaw, full pork with my own sauce. Zyron then went hunting for his assistant principal, Monica Hunter. She was one of the staff members who had helped coax out the real Zyron. And when he found her, it was easy to see why. Is Miss Hunter in there? Miss Hunter? It's the last little second. Oh, is it? I'm telling you, Miss Hunter. It's... You want to taste it now? Don't you wait. You know you got to taste it now. <laughs> you going to record my reaction? <laughs> you, you know I cook the best in the school. Make sure the trash can is closed just in case. <laughs> but do respect. Oh, yeah. What is this? Man, this is a cool pork sandwich that I made. Everything from scratch made on the stock and made my own. This scene, and the hundreds of others like it taking place every day in Jefferson County's quote-unquote bad schools, is what test scores fail to capture. Walking to his next class, Zyron was beaming. He talked about co-oping his senior year and running his own little business, selling meals to Iroquois staff. He already had a price point in mind, $12.50 for a main and two sides. I followed him into a classroom across the hall from Chef Rhodes' kitchen. There was a sub that day, and a theater performance was already playing over the projector. Zyron was still smiling as he sat down. But that didn't stop the outside world from creeping back in. Five minutes into class, Zyron got a call on his cell phone. He got up, walked out, and never came back. If you haven't already, please subscribe to A Bad School on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to rate the show. A Bad School is reported and produced by me, Mandy McLaren. Editing by Laura Unger. Sound engineering by Jeff Fonder. Mary Irby Jones is our executive editor. Special thanks to Chandler Hopeful and Adam Fish. This has been a production of The Courier-Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, a member of the USA Today Network.